Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, organized violence against peaceful protesters is unfortunately not new. We'll revisit an interview from 2010 conducted on the 50th anniversary of Jacksonville's Axe Handle Saturday. Jacksonville was, was quite a mess it probably was not unlike other southern cities in terms of, of segregation. We'll discuss Santa Rosa County in Florida's Panhandle. Most people probably passed through going from Tallahassee to Pensacola, never even knew they were in Santa Rosa County. And we'll talk about the history of migrant labor. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On August 27, 1960, people from the African-American community in Jacksonville gathered at the Laura Street Presbyterian Church and Youth Center to pray and sing, We Shall Overcome. Many of those present fled to the church from downtown Jacksonville seeking sanctuary. Earlier in the day, more than 200 white people wielding axe handles and baseball bats began attacking black people in response to a peaceful lunch counter demonstration organized by the Jacksonville Youth Council of the NAACP. 16-year-old Rodney L. Hurst was president of the Jacksonville Youth Council and led sit-ins at white lunch counters in Woolworths and W.T. Grant Department Store to protest racial segregation. Hurst has written a book about his experiences called It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. Rodney Hurst became involved in the civil rights movement at a very young age, inspired by a history teacher named Rutledge Pearson. If you can imagine as an eight, eighth grader, and at the time I was 11 years old when I went to Mr. Pearson's class, and he would sit and he would explain to you about the American history book, and he would go through a spiel about the chapters and the pages and what's included in the book, and then he would tell the entire class, leave it home. And then he would proceed to break the class out into clusters, into groups and, and, and clusters, and then we would study American history, we would study uh, uh, persons, both contemporary and, and those who uh, of, of days ago who were deceased. 
And every time we had a report to give, uh, a group would make a report, give a report, and the rest of the class would have to take notes. And Mr. Pearson would ask questions after every presentation while we were taking notes. So it was a, an interactive class, and I'm talking 1955, 55 years ago I'm talking about. Um, and, and as we talked about American history and as he gave us his insights and as we did out of the classroom research, then he would tell us freedom is not free. If you're not a part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And then he would encourage us to join the Youth Council NACP, which, which we did. And uh, it, it was such a, you know, as you, as you look back on those days and you, you follow, and as I've done many times from age 11 from his class through the NACP days and, and what ultimately happened downtown and, and the aftermath, you understand plans, and, and we were all very spiritual, and, and I'm spiritual, and you understand that how much that was a part of God's plan to so fix things in such a way where the chronology happened the way it did. Mr. Pearson's uh, definition of history was um, history was a narration of fact in chronological order with their cause and effect. And I often remember that definition, and I look back on those days as we were living uh, through history at that time, uh, and we were part of that narration, that chronological narration with the cause and effect. The violence of Axe Handle Saturday did not occur in a vacuum. Racial segregation and overt racism had been building tension in Jacksonville. In his book, It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, Rodney L. Hurst places his personal story in the larger historical context of the Civil Rights Movement and discusses specific aspects of segregation in Jacksonville. As Hurst explains, many people, both black and white, were uncomfortable promoting change. Jacksonville was, was quite a mess. It probably was not unlike other southern cities in terms of, of segregation. Uh, but it was um, it was just a it sit in demonstrations and confronting the system and what we did in some instances was just a culmination of just a series of things naming uh, a high school after Nathan Bedford Forrest the founder of the Klan all of that was part of it um, now understand that Jacksonville's black community was not monolithic so when we confronted the system. There were those who did not want us to do it. There were those, uh, there were, and, and I didn't get into this a lot in the book, but I was a member of uh, an Episcopal church, uh, and there were those um, blacks who talked to members of the church to try to get my mother to make sure that I did not do some of the things that that I was doing and, and later did. Um, the whole concept of confronting the comfort level during that time made a lot of folk uncomfortable, uh, black folk and white folk. White folk, obviously, but black folk, because obviously if you don't stir up racial trouble, see, I got a nice little pat hand based on what I'm doing. There were some folks who were identified as um, conciliators who were on the payroll of the mayor mayor of Jacksonville at that time and they were black and it was their responsibility to go out and make sure that there were no problems with black folk you know so you 
you undercut and under and and do whatever you need to do to keep that from happening. There were black churches, even though the black church was the backbone of the movement, but you still had had black churches who did not um, support the movement and did not allow us to have mass meetings, and some of their ministers who spoke against some of the things we were doing. Uh, but in spite of, uh, we still saw what we needed to do, and we did it. Even though Rodney Hurst and the other members of the Jacksonville Youth Council of the NAACP were staging peaceful protests, the potential for violence was always present. The very limited newspaper coverage of Axe Handle Saturday says that the violence erupted because a white man named Richard Charles Parker joined the black students in their lunch counter demonstrations. Rodney Hurst disagrees. The racist uh, who were anti and who would hurl the racial epithets and who saw whites as being uh, the nigger-loving agitators, uh, they still would have done some things if, it, if Parker had not have been involved. I don't think that exacerbated or it, it speeded up some of the stuff they were going to do. Uh, ten years ago, I met Clarence Sears, who was an informant for the FBI with the Klan, and he told us about the Klan having a meeting in a downtown Jacksonville uh, hotel to make plans to start a race riot. So the, you know, the Klan is the Klan, and you know we can dress up the Ku Klux Klan any way we want to, but they represented violence in its starkest form, in its rawest form. It, it was cowardly violence because obviously many times it was done under a hood, but still it was violent, non violence nonetheless, and the intent was to scare, intimidate, and, and to bring physical harm, and, and that escalated from axe handles and the baseball bats to, to shootings and ultimately to bombings, uh, and many times you could not draw a line between the Klan and law enforcement, because law enforcement at least were accomplices to a lot of the things that the Klan did. And obviously now, uh, 40, 50 years later, history bears that out based on just the member of law enforcement who were indicted for different crimes and who knew about some things and chose not to do anything. Um, so it's, um, it, it's uh, just a series of things put us in those lunch counters and would not allow us to leave. The book, It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, fills a void in Florida history. While largely a personal account from a participant's perspective, the book is augmented by research as well. Hearst says the research process was challenging due to a lack of extensive documentation of Axe Handle Saturday. You would figure that, if nothing more, that there would be some kind of, of news-oriented or journalistic curiosity about what was happening at that time. Even if a story was cut or not, not carried in the newspaper, you still would figure that there would be some notes or something, but, but uh, unfortunately nothing. Uh, the black press, and, and, and it's, it's, um, it goes without saying the job that they did because they really filled a void that the mainstream media just refused to, uh, to fill. Now, correspondingly, there were many news reporters in Jacksonville from outside of Jacksonville, from Chicago and New York and Washington and Atlanta and 
Orlando and Daytona Beach, Miami, Tampa, who covered what was happening here. And they might not have already got, got the story right, uh, their slanted views of reporting we might not have liked, but at least they covered the story. And, um, uh, and that was uh, something that the local media, news media and print media did not do. And I think that that's, uh, that's something that uh, is, I, I don't think they're proud of that. Um, uh, but, you know, it, nothing they can do about it now. I mean, that's just another part of history. We spoke with civil rights activist and author Rodney L. Hurst back in 2010 on the 50th anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday. On August 27, 1960, 200 white people wielding baseball bats and axe handles chased African Americans through downtown Jacksonville following a peaceful demonstration attempting to integrate lunch counters. The struggle for equal treatment continues today. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. The public television series Florida Frontiers is being recognized nationally with an award of excellence from the American Association for State and Local History. Check your local PBS schedule, or you can watch anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Santa Rosa County might not be the best-known county in Florida, but it does have a rich history, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Santa Rosa County is in the far western portion of Florida's Panhandle region. So Escambia County is the only county that's actually further west. But Santa Rosa stretches all the way in the northern part from the Alabama line down to the Gulf Coast. And as you pointed out, the history is really interesting. It goes all the way back to the very earliest period of European colonization. And actually prehistoric people lived in the region for thousands of years, even back into the 16th century in 1559, when Don Tristan de Luna tried to establish a colony on what would become the Escambia Bay area, present-day Pensacola, right along where Santa Rosa County is now. So we can really trace the origins of European settlement all the way back to the 16th century. But then if we fast forward to the British period, that's when you really started to see a concerted effort to settle what would become Santa Rosa County. And a lot of this settlement happened along the freshwater creeks and bayous that kind of make their way into the interior of Santa Rosa County. And that includes Blackwater Creek and, and some of the other bayous. And it was actually during this time period that the Panton Leslie Fur Trading Company moved their headquarters to Pensacola in the 1780s. And their trade network stretched throughout all of western Florida, all the way up into the Tennessee Valley region. It was really one of the largest 
largest corporations at that time that operated in the entire Southeast. And they had a lot of trade with the Creek and Seminole Indians that were living around Santa Rosa by that time period. But then moving into the Spanish period, there were a lot of Spanish citizens that received land grants, and they began these kind of subsistence farming operations, but also started what would become Santa Rosa's probably biggest industry in the 19th century, and that's logging and turpentine. The forests that make up the central part of Santa Rosa County were these old-growth virgin pine forests that were highly sought after for construction material. You also had these very large old-growth oak stands as well, in Escambia County as well. But in Santa Rosa, that's what people were going after, and that's what really fueled the growth into the 19th century, so much so that the county seat of Milton, which is right where the Blackwater Creek comes into East Bay, Milton was the seventh largest city in the entire state of Florida in 1860. That's how important commercially, at least, this area was. And all of the towns throughout Santa Rosa can trace their heritage in some way to the milling industry or to the logging industry. Unless they lived along the bay, there were only a couple of communities in the 19th century that lived on East Bay, and they survived off of commercial fishing primarily. It wasn't until the 20th century that tourism really started to take hold in that part of western Florida. And that was a lot of people that were coming from Alabama and Georgia on vacation to the coastal regions and started to kind of build up that area. So it's a fascinating history that stretches several centuries and really covers the gamut of West Florida history. Ben, you have here a large map from the Florida Historical Society archive that shows Santa Rosa County in 1940. Yeah, that's right. This map, as you said, is fairly large. It's almost four feet long by about two feet wide. And this was created, as you said, in 1940 by the War Department, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And this was common for a lot of parts of not only Florida, but the entire country. These were kind of logistical maps. You know, they were talking about and thinking about invasion strategies and uh, road networks throughout the country because, you know, Florida was still fairly rural, especially Santa Rosa County. In 1945, the state census only placed just under 17,000 people in the entire county. So it was very, very small, especially in comparison to the eastern and southern parts of the county by that time period. So it was still very rural. A lot of people were relying on farming and to a lesser extent, the timber industry, but it just hadn't grown that quickly. So there weren't that many roads in the county. And you can see that when you look at the portion that's Santa Rosa here. Of course, there's Blackwater River, all of the creeks that feed into it. Very, very important, really the lifeblood of the county for so many years. But if you start looking towards the northern half, there are just this smattering of just a couple of tiny towns, most of which are actually unincorporated. Milton was really one of the only incorporated towns in the entire county. But places like Florida Town, Pace, and then way up here by the Florida border, there's Jay, out almost in the middle of nowhere. That was one of these farming communities. You'll notice on the eastern half of the county, it's a lot of this wooded area. And you see this green part, and that's the beginnings of what would become the Blackwater River State Forest that was purchased by the state in the coming decades, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that was in an effort to try and rebuild the depleted pine forests. By the mid-20th century, there was very little of this milling going on, very little lumbering, because it was all essentially wiped out. So the state came in, bought up this huge part. And when you look at a map today, you'll see this giant green section. That's all protected state forests. And it's really just for that reason. And in the late 20th century, Interstate 10 brought a lot of change to Santa Rosa County, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. And when we look at this 1940 map, as I said before, there were very few roads. There's only one railroad. That's the Louisiana-Nashville line that ran from Pensacola east. 
And the history of Santa Rosa really ties in with the history of Escambia and, and the growth of Pensacola. So Santa Rosa into the 20th century became, in a lot of ways, kind of a bedroom community. Some of these smaller towns, especially in the southern part of the county, kind of fed into the Air Force bases and other military installations in the industry that was in Pensacola, but also in Santa Rosa County. And the interstate really, really changed how people kind of got around. I mean, most people now traveling on I-10, that 2,000-plus mile trip from California to Florida. And within Florida, it's only about 360 miles. But, you know, most people probably pass through going from Tallahassee to Pensacola, never even knew they were in Santa Rosa County. But for the folks that live there and for the residents there, it's really kind of changed how people get around. But it's also fed into this development, both the commercial and residential development, especially the southern part of the county. But even today, when you go up towards the Alabama border, it's still very, very rural, and it's still kind of tied to at least in terms of the culture, kind of that old Southern culture, deep-seated kind of rural farming communities that you don't see in a lot of parts of Florida. So in a lot of ways, you know, the northern part of the county has sort of held on to that history, whereas especially along the Gulf area, it's just kind of exploded in growth and change. So it's a very complex county. And for anybody traveling that way, it's certainly worth a stop in some of these towns and worth kind of a second look. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to find out more about Santa Rosa County and see the map we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. There's a long history of migrant labor in Florida. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. In the early 20th century, Bahamian laborers participated in circular migration, allowing them to travel back and forth seasonally for farm work between Florida and the Bahamas. After World War I, millions of African Americans moved away from rural areas and looked for opportunities beyond agriculture. The Great Migration changed the dynamics of labor in America. I recently spoke to historian Dr. Erin Conlin from Indiana University in Pennsylvania about her article in the Spring 2018 Florida Historical Quarterly Journal titled, Work or Be Deported, Florida Growers and the Emergence of a Non-Citizen Agricultural Workforce. You start to see early on in Florida that there's a reliance on either Bahamian labor or at the time they would just would have referred to it as black labor, right? That it would have been whether it was African-American or if it had Bahamian roots, maybe some other groups that were mixed in. But there was this long history there that was reliant on black labor and that had done most of the heavy lifting for agriculture, tourism, construction, all of those industries. And in Florida, then you start to see some changes that's happening in terms of this transition of a labor force. And that's really around sort of the Great Migration period. You know, during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl area, we see a lot of migration in the United States in general. Florida follows that trend, um, but we see a massive uptick around World War I and World War II, where you have the Great Migration. You've got millions of African-Americans that are really trying to look for better opportunities. Between 1943 and 1966, the Bahamian Temporary Labor Program in Florida was established by the governments of the Bahamas and the United States. It allowed thousands of Bahamian men and women from the islands to carry out agricultural work in the states. The program gave many Bahamians the chance to earn enough money to start their own businesses. 
Some workers returned to the Bahamas, while others settled in communities located in the United States, particularly in Florida and New York. The Bahamian Temporary Labor Program ended in 1966. So by 1966, you start to see the formal program coming to a close. And then as part of that, right, you also have this changing kind of labor trend and mechanization that's happening starting in the 1950s. There's also changes in immigration policy and attitudes during the 1950s. We see an uptick in anti-immigrant attitudes, things like the 1952 McCarran-Walter Act, which reinforced the quota system that had been implemented earlier. And as part of that, they create this H-2 provision, which allows for the modern H-2A program to emerge. So there's sort of these overlapping histories as to which programs are happening, what are some of the new rules they're being adopted under, and then how are attitudes changing? As African Americans and Bahamians moved on to other industries, there were major transformations in the American labor system. Florida's farm workforce transitioned from Bahamian and African American laborers to Latinx workers, primarily from Mexico. So if we go from seeing this trend in the 1950s that's happening, what we start to see is that many people who identified of some sort of Latin descent, oftentimes Mexican or Mexican-American, were moving out of the Southwest and looking for new opportunities, but also looking for familiar types of work that they knew how to do. And so they started gravitating to Florida. The numbers are pretty small in 1950s in Florida. 1960s, they start to increase a little bit, but it's actually really not until the 1980s and 1990s that we see a massive change. The 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act is gonna have a huge impact, as does NAFTA. And with those demographic changes then, what we see are these overlapping histories. We see this progressive kind of change over time for African-Americans leaving agriculture in larger numbers. We see Bahamians who filled that void. When the Bahamians are moving out, it's the same times that more uh, Latinx workers are coming in and they're starting to fill those same needs. And then all of a sudden it becomes clear to a lot of employers that it's actually less desirable to have these formal guest worker programs. It's more affordable for them and you know it's better for them as an employer to be able to take advantage of undocumented work or falsely documented. Still, these are people who are, are working very much on the margins and existing in the margins of society because they don't have access to the full legal system since they're not here as legal workers. Americans don't often think of the people who produce their food. Today, nearly 70% of all farm workers in the United States are from Mexico. Florida's agricultural workforce reflects the national trend. The annual income is around $7,000 for a single farm worker in Florida. Many farm laborers live in poverty and can't even afford to buy the fresh fruits and vegetables that they harvest. Dr. Conlon. You know, an element that I didn't really get into as much in the article, but I think is really important, and you see this in a couple other scholars' work as well, is the idea of an invisible labor force. Historically, farm workers and a lot of the people who had done the labor in Florida, and this goes back to the days of slavery, right? Those are invisible workers. They exist behind the scenes. They live in a different area. It's often sort of hidden from the main roads, the main houses. And modern farm work is the same way, that typically people are tucked away into very rural areas. And so they're not on a consumer's radar. When we go to the grocery store, we're not really thinking about who is producing or picking the food that I am now taking off a grocery store shelf. And so that layer of invisibility can be really detrimental to workers because so much of what they do happens way beyond the purview of the general public. And I would hope that we can move towards a point where people are more visible, that there is a respect for the work that they do, take a step back from fighting over whether or not a worker is illegal or illegal, and instead thinking a little bit more about sort of the basic human rights that we want workers in the country to have. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.